come on a journey with a cinephile. everybody to episode number 12 of journey with a cinephile a horror movie podcast as always your guide david garrett jr here and for this episode i have featured reviews for tammy and the t-rex as well as the new movie will be color out of space now i know i originally said i was going to do the sixth friend I end up realizing and i'll get more into that during the mini review for it so i still did watch it and getting into that i have many reviews as well for revenge of the creature last year's godzilla king of the monsters as well as another 2020 watch that didn't necessarily come out this year but it did for american viewers as it's from australia in the marshes so what i'm gonna go ahead and do is get you over to our first musical break before i get into those mini reviews
Okay, and the first film that I watched for my mini reviews this week is one that I originally said that was going to be a featured review, and then looking into it a little bit more, I realized I had misread some things, so I'm going to still hold up my end of the bargain and, and review it, but it will just be the first mini review, which the film that I'm alluding to is The Sixth Friend. This is directed by Latia Colston, who also co-wrote the screenplay with Jamie Bernadette, who came up with the story as well. This also stars Jamie Bernadette, Chantel Albers, and Dominique Swain. This is a horror film from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 4.3 on IMDb and a 2.7 on Letterboxd. And the synopsis is... Six college best friends throw their own private graduation party that goes terribly wrong when an uninvited guest arrives. Five years later, the girls gather once again and endure a night of far more horror and bloodshed. Now, as I was saying, when the co-writer and star, Bernadette, had reached out on social media group that I'm currently maintaining about this being on Amazon Prime, since I like to support independent cinema and film, and this movie sounded intriguing, I decided to give it a viewing. I thought overall this movie worked. Coming out during this, you know, Me Too era is really intriguing because under the influence, these six women brutally murdered a guy that was attempting to rape their friend. I do think it's a bit implausible that they wouldn't have any type of repercussions because they still murdered a guy, which the crux of the story is that a drug dealer shows up to their party, which is the one that happens right after they graduated. He brings drugs for them and then tries to rape their friend Katie, who is Jessica Morris, and her friends Joey Taylor, who is Bernadette, Melissa White, who is Elbers, Heather, who is Swain, Sahara, who is Tanya Nolan, and Becca is Monique Rosario, all murdered Tyler, who is David Velada. And then getting back into what I was saying, I just find it a little bit implausible that after they murdered this guy five years after the fact, so there could have been something, it was just glossed over. It's just something that I thought about and it bothered me, so I was just kind of curious as to if there was sort of something like that that we just didn't have brought up here. And so then I do have to say, outside of Joey and Melissa, they really don't flesh out the characters all that much. I get that they have six of them makes it tough, and I'm assuming that number was selected due to the fact that it gives it a slightly higher body count at the end. I think part of this probably was Bernadette playing as the lead, so that character gets fleshed out. And I do think that the rest of the characters are distinct, despite not really learning much about them. But for the most part, they're generic, stereotypical characters that you'd get in a slasher-type movie, which I would kind of say that's how this plays out. So, I mean, another way to say it is that they're stock characters as well. And it's kind of interesting to call this a slasher because we really don't get a lot of stabbing deaths. and we But we do get a, quite a few people picked off in different ways until we get to our final girl. I unfortunately found this movie to be somewhat boring. I think the reason being is that it really takes so long to get into the killing. It spends a lot of time introducing us to the characters and kind of their dynamic. But makes us wait a bit to understand what is fully happening until that night where all the killings start to happen. I do think there are some interesting reveals at the end of this, though, for sure. As for the acting, I did think it was pretty solid across the board. Bernadette does well at being someone who is attractive yet brooding. I feel bad for her. She never fully got over what happened, despite everybody pressuring her to. 
Albers is also solid as well. I think that her character makes sense as to what is established, so where she ends up, I did buy. Swain is interesting, as I remember seeing her for the first time when she was casted in the remake of Lolita. I shouldn't factor this in, since she doesn't look that much older than everybody else, but I just knew that she was quite a bit older than the rest, so I have issues believing that they all graduated the same year. This might just be something that I can't get over, but I thought I'd bring it up here. Her performance though was good, and I thought it was actually one of the better ones for sure. Morris, Nolan, and Rosario all round out for what was needed. Despite being stock characters, they do bring enough of their own flair here as well. When it comes to movies like this, I do get concerned with how well the effects will look. And to be honest, I thought for the most part they were good. They went practical aside from a couple things. I could tell that the fire we get near the end is CGI, but it looked better than some I've seen in movies that, you know, probably had a little bit bigger of a budget. There's also another scene at around that time that didn't really work for me and I could tell that was CGI and that didn't look great. And I know there's some scenes where while they're on acid, that everything looks distorted. I've never used this drug, so I'm not necessarily sure if that's how it would look or not, but I did think, I won't count anything down there because of not having experienced it, but it's something that I'm not sure if that's how it necessarily looks or not. But I did think the cinematography was pretty solid though. And now with that said, I do think overall this is a solid movie as well. I think it has an interesting premise and would like to actually pick Bernadette's brain to see where she came up with this story and how much of it was from personal experience. Not all of the reveals work, but overall I thought the story did. I did find it to be a bit boring after we get introduced to our characters until it really gets into the killings. The acting was solid across the board. No issues there for me. The effects aside from a couple things were good. The soundtrack really didn't stand out, but it also didn't hurt or take me out of it. Overall, I would say this is just slightly over average. Just a few minor changes, this could have been a bit higher for me. So my rating here is going to be a 6 out of 10. And for my second review of this week is going to be Revenge of the Creature. This is from 1955. This is directed by Jack Arnold. And it's from a screenplay written by Martin Berkeley, as well as a story from William Olland. This stars John Agar, Laurie Nelson, John Bromfield. This is a horror and sci-fi movie from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.7 on IMDb and a 2.8 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being men capture the creature from the Black Lagoon and make him an aquarium attraction from which he escapes. Now, I checked this out as while well I was working through my list of horror films, I got the chance to cheat to see the original creature in 3D at the Gateway Film Center. Now, I had to shift to watch this sequel before getting to the third film, which fell next alphabetically, where this one obviously is down in the R's, so I had to jump down to see that before I moved back to, which I believe is The the Creature Walks Among Us. Now, I really like the original, even though it's one that I came to quite late, having just seen it last year, so I was quite intrigued to see how the sequels kind of played out. And I do have to say, I think that this one, being one of the later Universal films, does have a bit more as a lot of the earlier ones were a little bit lighter on the story and I think a lot of that is just how early in filmmaking they were. Now much like the sequels that come from the studio they don't necessarily work well with the continuity. I don't think this one is horrible about it. We kind of assume that the Gilman probably died at the end of its predecessor but I'm willing to overlook that 
and just assume that the creature probably could have survived, which would explain why it's more aggressive in this one, knowing that the people coming are out to hurt it. Because this one begins with Joe Hayes, who is Bromfield, coming out to that the Black Lagoon where the creature has been living with Jackson Foster, who is Grandin Rhodes, as well as Lucas, who was in the previous film, reprising his role as Nestor Paiva. Now, they set up some traps in order to catch this creature, but during this time, the creature is much more aggressive in attacking Joe. So that's what I'm getting at that. This could be the same exact creature in that it is much more aggressive because of, you know, its knowledge from what happened in the original. Now, I have to say, this movie has some interesting social commentary as it as well. I've seen Horror Noir a couple times, the documentary, and I know they lumped Gilman in there. It didn't click until this watching what they meant. Our three main guys here are white. There's Helen, who the men are competing for, but we have something that is different from them that is going after her as well. Now, fears of many white men back at this time, and I'm assuming even probably nowadays there's much more quiet about it, are would be that black men would do this and come after their women. And I finally see what they mean, especially looking at the mask for the creature this time around. I don't necessarily know if that's what they're going for or trying to say, but the fear is probably in the back of their minds at the time of making this. And then going from there, we have this one-of-a-kind creature being taken from its natural habitat to Florida. I have some issues with this, as it's similar to places like SeaWorld, where the animals aren't treated all that well. I felt really bad for the training that they're trying to do to Gilman, because that's kind of the crux of it, is that Professor Cleet Ferguson, who is a gar, is known for his animal psychology background, and here he's trying to train Gilman but it almost feels like torture, and it could be me projecting that the creature is man-like, that I'm giving it traits that I would to give to a man. But I understand that they're trying to study this creature that is a one-of-a-kind, but where this ends up and what they're doing to it kind of made me feel bad for it. Now, I did find it kind of a bit of a flaw that Gilman is from fresh water. At least, that's what I'm assuming. The lagoon that he gets its water from is from a river, but in this movie, he does escape into the ocean. I would just assume this is a flaw the story wasn't thinking about, but I believe this is a freshwater creature going into saltwater, which should kill it, or at least, you know, give it some issues, but it just kind of ignores it, and I'm, like I said, just going off of the fact that they probably didn't even think about it. Now, something I don't want to harp on too much that is present here is misogyny. I do like that this is more progressive than many of the Universal films of the past, where we do have, again, a woman scientist. That is something that we also had in the original. My problem, though, is that she has two men who are vying for her attention, and she doesn't seem to have a say in it. It is decided for her when Joe is going to back off because he doesn't think Cleet can compete with him. And then she ends up being regulated to being his assistant to Cleet, and then the damsel in distress. This is mostly a product of the time, but I felt I should point it out here still as that is something that struck me while watching this. Now I'm going to move to the pacing, which does bum me out to say I found this to be a bit boring. I was excited as the creature from the Black Lagoon is one of my favorites from Universal from this like original run. And I would definitely say it's in my top three. So knowing that they made a couple sequels that, you know, piqued my interest. When I finally sat down to watch this, I like that we got right into the story and getting Gilman to America. The problem is that it gets repetitive, and then when he gets free, I was just bored. The ending is pretty similar to the original, just of course in a different place that it's happening. It is quite sad from things that I stated previous for sure. To shift this over to the acting, I thought this was fine. 
Agarwa saw it as a professor who is out to understand the creature more. The misogyny is an issue along with the same thing for Bromefield, who I thought was fine as the rough guy who tangles with the creature a few times. I understand this is a product of the times though, so I'm a bit more forgiving of it. Now Nelson, who is Helen Dobson, I did like that she was a scientist, but I didn't like that the role she is regulated to. The effort was there at least, but it just didn't go far enough. And I do believe this came out sometime after we probably would have got more of that. I did like that they brought back Pavia as Lucas, as well as that continuity to take him there works for me. Shoutouts to Riku Browning and Tom Hennessy. As Browning plays the creature when it's in the water, and he does so well in the swimming scenes that it seems realistic, as well as Hennessy who plays the creature on land. I do have to point out here as well, it's funny that we get the first but uncredited appearance of Clint Eastwood, as he's somewhat of a bumbling lab technician. I do think the rest of the cast rounded this out for what we needed. The effects are something that can be difficult to judge a movie like this on. They don't really use a lot, but they're done practically. I did like the Gilman suit looked. How he was able to move in the water along with breathing on land was really good. It's interesting because the creature cannot survive outside of the water for too long. But when he is breathing outside of the water, we can definitely see the mask moving like the gills are trying to breathe. So I thought that was kind of cool to make it, you know, somewhat amphibious. The cinematography is pretty solid as we do get a lot of underwater shots, which are pretty impressive, especially for the era. Now, I do think this one takes a step back, but not enough that I didn't enjoy it. There's some interesting social commentary here, both what the movie is trying to get across and just some issues with the film that it doesn't realize until you look at it, you know, with fresh eyes. I did like that it seems to follow the continuity, but the story didn't really hold my attention as much as I would have liked. I did find it to be a bit boring, to be honest. The acting was fine, but props to both men who portrayed the creature. The effects and cinematography were good for the era. The soundtrack didn't really stand out, but it fit for what was needed and never took me out of the movie. Overall, I would say this is above average for me personally and would come in with a 7 out of 10. Okay, and next I watched Godzilla, King of the Monsters, the one that came out last year in 2019. This is directed by Michael Daughtry who also co-wrote the screenplay as well as helped come up with the story. Now he co-wrote this with Zach Shields, who also helped with the story. And then Max Borenstein came up with the story along with them. This stars Kyle Chandler, Vera Farmiga, Millie Bobby Brown. This is an action adventure fantasy sci-fi, and it comes from Japan, Canada, the United States, and Mexico. With the synopsis being, the cryptozoological agency Monarch faces off against a battery of god-sized monsters, including the mighty Godzilla, who collides with Mothra, Rodan, and his ultimate nemesis, the three-headed King Ghidorah. This is currently sitting on a 6.1 on IMDb and a 2.8 on Letterboxd. Now, anyone who knows me and my film taste knows that I love Godzilla films growing up. I tended to watch the same ones over and over again, and... It actually took me a while to watch the original one, so I watched some of the more cheesy sequels. But as an adult, I ended up sinking out all of them. And I actually remember seeing the 1998 remake with my father and sister while in the theater. And I'll admit, I enjoyed the most recent remake and the talk of this monster universe they were building. And then when hearing about this film, I had to see it. And I thankfully got to as an early surprise showing that was happening at the Gateway Film Center. And then... I actually watched it last night on DVD. And to kind of just give some background information is that after what Godzilla did in 2014 in San Francisco, they've been trying to figure out a way to 
contain these monsters but not necessarily kill them but then the government is stepping in because there's no way to really stop them and that's what monarch is trying to do but in the process of this a family is torn apart where the father is mark russell who is chandler and his wife is dr emma who is Farmiga, and then they have a daughter of Madison, who is Brown, and their son was killed in San Francisco, and they decided to take different routes of coping with this. And then we see in the beginning here that the egg containing a larva of Mothra hatches, and then an e ecological terrorist group that is led by Alan Jonah, portrayed by Charles Dance, arrives to kidnap emma and madison as well as take this machine that will allow them to communicate with the giant monster and then there's a plan to start releasing them to create the balance back in the world now the first thing i really wanted to talk about here is that i don't as i think a lot of people aren't going to consider this a horror film i personally don't blame you i think kaiju films are horror adjacent for me and the thought of giant monsters destroying cities and and killing all the people that they do is quite horrific now, this film does have some bleak moments, but it is nowhere near as dark as the original Godzilla film was. And these films are quite interesting to me, as I think there's quite a bit of them that are fun, while they can also be cheesy. Now, this one does have some cheesy lines by some of the characters, especially from Dr. Rick Stanton, who is Bradley Whitford. He just has such good timing that I don't really blame him when he, you know, makes certain comments that are comedic. And then they also another person is Chief Warrant Officer Barnes, who is O'Shea Jackson Jr. I can really let that slide, to be honest. What they really need to do is to balance the giant monster fighting with the story of the humans that are surrounding it. And I think that one does this well. And the human story is interesting in this, as the reason the terrorist group is doing what they're doing is because humans are ruining the planet. And as a race, they're pretty much garbage. As bleak as that sounds, I'm 100% in agreement with this. I really like the that aspect, especially because there's a duality of them trying to save us while we destroy the planet or allow natural progression to happen with the monsters doing what they are made to do. Going along with the story, I absolutely love the concept of incorporating mythology into the lore of these monsters. There are some really cool images that are used to associate them that I was a big fan of. As a lover of mythology, this definitely was an aspect that really hit home for me. This film does have some really good fights between the monsters as well. I personally love the realism of how all of these giant creatures look, and that really made me happy to see. I will say that the, this is definitely CGI heavy, which really turned out to be just fine for me. It never took me out of it, which was surprising, and I think the effects in this film are great to be honest. As I kind of touched on a couple paragraphs up, the balance of the kaijus and the humans is an interesting one that you have to have. I think that the writer-director Daughtry did an excellent job of that. Now I know him from Trick or Treat, which was a horror anthology in Krampus, where he had to balance different aspects for each of these films. I think that the experience really shines through here. Being that this film was just over two hours, it didn't feel like it, and I was on board the whole way. I still think that it is a bit long, and there's a stretch late in the second act, beginning into the third act, that did slow down for me a bit. That's not to say I didn't enjoy it, though, and I never got bored. The ending is really interesting, as it alludes to the next film that is supposed to be coming. And at the time of you know recording this, it does look like it is a go. There are some things with the story, though, that are kind of plot hole-ish, but nothing that completely ruined the movie for me. 
into some quick examples of that is how far they go down into the ocean without anything happening with their ship, just to kind of name something there. Acting for the film I thought was really good as well. There's an interesting cast with Chandler, Farmiga, and Brown as the Broken Family. I thought they all did great. I was glad to see that they use Ken Wanatabi, who's an amazing Japanese actor, as Dr. Hishiro Serizawa. I thought he was great as well. We have Z Zhang Whitford, Sally Hawkins, Dance, Thomas Middleditch, Aisha Hines, Jackson, and the rest of the cast I thought rounded this out for what was needed. I could go on and on here, but I won't just because there is such a large ensemble cast. But like I said, they all did really well for me. The last thing to cover would be the soundtrack of this film. I saw that Bear McCreary did it, and that excited me. I first saw his name for The Walking Dead, and what I really like about this, though, is he incorporated music from the original films as well as others in the series, but did his own thing with them as well as the rest of the score. It really fit and definitely enhanced the scenes where there's a few times where, especially after the second viewing, they stood out to me where I could pick out where they were from and like which movies, and it really just got my adrenaline going even more. Now, with that said, I might be running off the high of, you know, that first viewing when I wrote this originally and then a little bit after, you know, the update of this review, but I really did enjoy this. I liked how they incorporated a solid social message into this film while giving us what we really want. This was brought to life by great acting and writing. There was a bit of cheesiness to it, but I come to expect that. I think the editing of this film keeps it balanced while keeping it interesting and the ending was solid. It is CGI heavy, but looked real. The soundtrack of the film was also helped to enhance the scenes. I would have liked to know more about some of the monsters that I didn't recognize, but if these films keep having success, I think they will and definitely could later, you know, delve a bit more into that. I would definitely recommend giving this a viewing as I thought it was really good. And I originally came in with this rating after watching it and then during my year end countdown had dropped it a half a point but i'm back up and i think this is where i will stay even after subsequent viewings i'm sure so my rating here is a nine out of ten and next i have the marshes which technically was made in 2018 but is now getting released here in 2020 this is written and directed by roger scott it stars daphna cronenthal sam delish and matthew cooper this is a horror film from Australia. It is sitting on a 4.1 on IMDb and a 2.4 on Letterboxd. The synopsis being deep in a remote marshland, three young biologists conduct research, but when they encounter evil, science ends and survival begins. Now this is a film that I originally checked out as I needed a 2020 horror film for a featured review on my podcast here. But, and that being that nothing major hit the theaters during that week I thought as I was looking at the Gateway Film Center but didn't realize that Color Out of Space came out later in the week so what I had what I did is I gave this a watch on Shudder as you can see I'm doing this as a mini review now instead since I did watch it now I heard this wasn't very good and when I saw the rating I still wanted to give it a chance before deciding for myself and then just to kind of give some background information aside from just the synopsis is we have a scientist who is Pyra who is Cronenthal as she's talking to a co-worker and it is brought up that there's only one position at this place that she is working. And that's when the person that she is going up against for that position, Ben, who is Cooper, 
asks if he can tag along on the expedition that she's taking to the marshlands. And then we get to meet our third character as well, who is Will, portrayed by Delish, as she finds him somewhat attractive as he's taking supplies to the car. Now they head out to this marshland where they're going to check out some of the you know, wildlife and take water samples. But before they get out there, they have a run-in with a hunter who is portrayed by Zach Drayson. And then over the campfire that night, they hear about a person that was known as a swag man who supposedly lived and killed people in the area. And that there was a certain tune that he would whistle while he did some of the things that he did. As this is more of like a campfire urban legend type tale. Now, the movie did some things early on that hooked me. The first thing is that I like our three main characters are either scientists or students training to be scientists as that gives us the basis for them to do investigation. On top of that, I like the setting of this marsh with the high grass because as I've said before in other reviews, I grew up in the country with cornfields that were surrounding my parents' house that were taller than me and they can be quite scary and disorienting which this grass has grown to be that high. And then on top of that, there is the two hunters where we get to meet the jerk guy at the gas station, but he also has a woman who is portrayed by Amanda McGregor that is also with him as well. The problem though, all of this good setup ends up falling flat. The opening images we get are our tiny microscopic creatures that would probably be living in the water in this area. So I immediately started to think this could be an infection movie. Nope. I think that they use this just as stock footages, as well as we get others intercut throughout of animals that would live in the area, but that goes nowhere. Then I thought this might be something like Deliverance, as that movie is referenced quite a few times as they're bothered by these hunters who Pyra calls the male and inbred hick. This also really doesn't go anywhere either, except they do mess with them a little bit. This movie finally settles into what it wants to be, where it is skirting the lines of a supernatural or just a deranged person, but it never commits to either fully, as it's somewhat kind of a slasher film as well. To make it worse though, it uses a bunch of dream sequences that actually ended up annoying me. Now, I don't want to just beat this movie down, but despite its 95 minute runtime, it takes forever for something to happen. I don't mind taking the first 30 minutes or so to introduce us to what we have here. We get to meet the main core of characters during this stretch and establishing where they are as well as what they'll be doing. The problem then becomes it takes another 15 minutes before anything actually happens. It never hooked me and I found it to be boring due to this. The ending actually made me mad for what it did as well. It is a shame as the villain that they finally introduced in the Swagman is pretty creepy, especially with the look and implication of them. As for the acting, I do have to say this is a bright spot. I like the dynamic that we get between Cronenthal, Delish, and Cooper. Pyra and Ben are butting heads because they're vying for the same position that there only seems to be enough money for one of them. He gets a bit dirty in calling her out and showing interest in Will because he's a student, while at least he does give her the warning. The sexual tension between her and Will did feel real. When things get tense, I feel like they're actually worried and concerned. Drayson and McGregor really don't have the biggest part, but I like how rude they are, and it is interesting with what happens to both of them. Now, Eddie Baru looks really interesting in his role as well. He's really fitting and has quite a creepy look, actually. The effects, there wasn't really a whole lot to talk about. I like that the things they do are off screen. We do get a little bit of blood, which looked real. I would say that the people that are attacked do look terrified, and I would have to give credit to the cinematography here. They initially frame things as they probably didn't have the budget, which helps 
in preventing from me nitpicking it and instead of you know going cgi the shears that the killer are using are quite creepy as well as he has some of the old school shears that i mean the ones that are used looked rusty and they're the type that you actually have to press to close and then when you let them go they snap back open now with that said this film did some things that hooked me but then really just kind of let me down i don't like to bash movies if i don't have to because i give credit to people to put in their time money and effort this unfortunately tried to do too much without really doing anything i just found it to be boring where it went and it didn't go far enough I did think that the acting was a bright spot, and even though we don't get a lot of the effects, it is framed in a way where I'm not bothered by that. The soundtrack really didn't stand out, but it also didn't hurt. I did like the whistling song that we get, as it is an interesting theme for the killer, and was quite creepy actually. I personally found this just to be below average. Did some good things, but didn't do enough and lost its way because of it. So my rating here is going to be a 4.5 out of 10. And what I'm going to go ahead and do is send you over to the first trailer for my featured reviews. Look at this. All those years in the big city, we finally got out. We're living the dream. Maybe it is a dream. light or actually i don't even know what color it was it wasn't like any color i'd ever seen before looks like a meteorite i mean it's radioactive i mean it's from space right meteorites are generally no more dangerous than ordinary rocks how can something that big just disappear did you plant those no ward you come here for a sec oh god what are you doing? Shh. It's talking to me. Who's talking to you? A man in the well. It's in the static. It's in the moisture. It's in here. It's out there. And what's out there is in here now. Everything's under control. Why are you so in denial? That thing from the meteorite changes everything around it. Okay, and for my first featured review for this episode is going to be this year's The Color Out of Space. This is directed by Richard Stanley, who also co-wrote the screenplay along with Scarlett Aramis, and this is based on the short story by H.P. Lovecraft. It stars Nicolas Cage, Jolie Richardson, and Madeline Arthur. This is coming from a co-production from Malaysia, Portugal, and the United States, and it's a horror sci-fi movie. It is currently sitting on a 6.3 on IMDb and a 3.3 on Letterboxd, 
with the synopsis being a town is struck by a meteorite and the fallout is catastrophic. Now, I will admit, I have seen a different adaptation of this Lovecraft story from Italy. That one had a much smaller budget and was called Color from the Dark. I think this is actually more from the Lovecraft short story, but I don't think I've read this one yet. As I decided to start to, you know, look into more of his stories recently, regardless, this one excited me and I got the chance to catch us at the Gateway Film Center. We start this off with Lavinia, who is Arthur, as she is practicing what appears to be a Wiccan ritual and... This is an interesting way to show that she wants out of this small area as she is living as well as that her mother had cancer as cause that's who she is praying for mostly as well as for her to get out that caused the family you know quite a scare with what happened with their mother. It should also be pointed out here that she comes off definitely as whatever the name for this generation is right below millennials in she pretends to be somewhat of a vegan, but then the problem is also is she doesn't want to eat her family's cooking as she would rather have a McDonald's cheeseburger and she is somewhat gothic, but she's really just rebelling what her parents, you know, want to have her do and is doing whatever she can to try to, you know, kind of separate herself. But while she's doing this, she gets spooked by Ward, who is Elliot Knight, as before we actually see what Lavinia is doing, there's a narration showing us the woods in the area to start the film off technically. And this is explained that this place is in Arkham in the New England portion of the United States. And he ends up, like I said, spooking her and explains that he's a hydrologist who's there to study the water table. Later on, there is an interesting reveal that there is a major project to create a dam as well as a reservoir to provide drinking water for a large area, hence why he's there to test the water to make sure that it's not contaminated. Now, the two of these hit it off, though, when she learns that he's much more open-minded than she realized, and she ends up taking off on her horse, Comet, and goes back home. It is there that we get to meet the rest of the family, which has Nathan is the father who is portrayed by Cage. They're living in a family farm house that his father owned, and they're raising alpacas, which does bring somewhat of a comedic relief here and there. Now, his wife is Teresa, who is Richardson. And from what I gathered from just seeing her as she's working, is she's a freelance investment banker that works out of the attic of their home. And I'm believing this is due to when she came down being sick that they probably moved her out of an office wherever she was so she could stay home to kind of help out with the treatments and to make sure she could put less strain on herself. Their eldest son is Benny, who is Brendan Meyer, and he's a bit of a pothead. And there seems to be somewhat where the father has a lot of, I guess, sees a lot of potential in him, where he kind of keeps messing up, and this kind of creates a sibling rivalry with Lavinia. There's finally Jack, who is Julian Hillard, who is the younger son, and they also have a dog as well. And we get a bit more of their family dynamic over dinner. Things then take a turn that night when a meteorite hits in their front yard. It affects the family differently, though. Nathan starts to smell something that reminds him of the ward that his father died in, as his father had cancer as well. Teresa starts to lose herself. Jack is drawn to it and then the well, thinking that he's hearing someone talking to him and claims that it's his new friend. Now, Ward gets involved to test the water, and this brings him to encounter an off-the-grid hippie in Ezra, who is portrayed by the legendary Tommy Chong. 
Now this meteorite brought a color that Nathan couldn't describe, but it also brought much more than that as well. Now since this film just came out a couple days ago, I wanted to introduce enough in my recap without spoiling the movie. I think most people who are coming into this have a rough idea what could happen here, just not necessarily how it's specifically going to play out. I think through the screenplay and how things are introduced, we have a pretty deep story here that I dug. I guess the first thing that I should do here is refer to what I know from the short story and the previous movie that I've seen. I believe, and if I'm wrong, please correct me, that this movie and the story are closer together in that it crashes onto this farm. Now, Color from the Dark, it is already there living in the well, but it just gets released. Now here, after the meteorite crashes, the next night has a pretty strong storm that comes through. Lavinia is getting rained on as she is drawn to watch what is happening. And this also gets her father to come outside to try to get her to come back in. And we see that the lightning keeps striking the meteorite as if it's drawing it there. This happens over and over again to the point where the next morning the meteorite is completely gone. We then see that it has contaminated the water in the well and from what Ward discovers, the whole supply. I'm assuming this is probably that their well is a probably just a vertical tunnel that is bringing water from a water supply that is underneath that is going all over this area could be wrong there but that's just kind of how I took it and we get to see that the water has this creepy gelatinous blob like thing that is coming out when we see it at first when Lavinia is running a water faucet and then later on when Nathan is in the shower now this is a fitting time for the movie to come out with this concept as well I don't really want to get too political here, but it is fitting that at the time of writing this, regulations on water testing and certain precautions were lifted by the government. We briefly meet the mayor, who is Tuma, portrayed by Koronaka Kilcher, whose big plan for her term is to get this reservoir built. I love this apocalyptic background that if what is happening isn't contained, it will spread. At the crux of this, we have a kind of body snatcher, alien takeover, infection type movie. What I did like about this movie as well is that we briefly established the norm for this family before things change. I think that quick baseline works. I hate to say this though, the only person I really didn't care for in this movie was Cage. I think he went too over the top too early and then it just gets weird. I do like that he's going back and forth as what this entity is doing is messing with him, but I feel that he should have been a bit normal before that happened. Now, Lavinia is interesting as I saw some of my childhood in her where she was gothic-ish but still likes normal things because that was definitely me in my junior high years. I got from that and from what happened with me is that it's just a legit phase that she's going through. And I think a lot of that being that age she is and she's close to getting out, that is why she's rebelling. Teresa is another odd character as well. I like that they establish her sad backstory, but I don't know if Richardson's performance is good though she's just way too subdued and kind of just fades into the background and there's an interesting scene with her and jack later in the movie that because she kind of faded off i didn't really have the same emotional impact that i think the film wants you to have and i thought the rest of the acting was good as well knight is an interesting character for sure I like that we get a fun Lovecraft reference for those familiar in that he's wearing a Misatonic University sweatshirt, a nice little reanimator reference. I like that he's here as our investigator. I did have an issue in that there's a long stretch where he disappears, where it's established pretty early on that he's our quote unquote hero. Chong was fun in his appearance as Ezra. 
I like to think that this is just his Cheech and Chong character who's retired to this area and he's scared of the government and just living off of the grid. And it's pretty interesting that he does some of the investigation for us as well. Now, Sheriff Pierce, who is one of the producers in Josh C. Waller, does become important later in the movie, but he's never established early before that, which I found to be quite odd. Now, something I do have to say after this initial viewing, I do think this runs a bit long. It gets right into introducing us to the characters and the events that change everything that is happening. The movie really has a surreal feel to it, and I'll get more into that during the effects here shortly and how this is shot. I just felt that the film meanders for a bit during the later second act. I like where it ended up though, and the ending was interesting. It is open-ended, and I'm not entirely sure what they're getting at, so I do want to see this again before the year ends to properly grade everything as well. And since I touched on it, I thought the effects were great. We get a lot of practical stuff, which I'm always down for. I was glad to see that Stanley was the director here, as I've seen two of his other films, Hardware and Dust Devil. Both of them I could see led to some of the odd creatures that we get here, mostly from the former. And I did find online that there was an interesting quote that is on the wall of Benny that is taken directly from hardware as well. Now there's a lot of CGI, but I personally thought it was used very well. We get electricity that's attacking people. We also get some The Thing references with some of the creatures that we see. And the use of color here is amazing. I wonder if Arthur was selected because Normally, she has beautiful blue eyes, but they're highlighted here later in the movie as well. Uh, the cinematography is also on point with all of this, and I have to give a lot of credit there. Being that this is the same studio that did Mandy, I, I don't get a lot of those vibes from that movie. However, this movie looks like the entity is doing things that is where I would give the reference to Mandy in a lot of the you know surreal and color feels that we get there. The last thing to cover is the soundtrack and sound design. The big thing that struck to me early was the use of sounds for this entity. We see that Ezra being on the ground claiming that he heard something talking in the night and then recorded it. It comes off as static and weird, like piercing loud noises. What I like about this though is that we're introduced to this with Jack. He, We take it as jib gibberish and nothing really being said but they're relaying that they're taking something more out of it which goes back to every character is affected differently and then later in the music we get some music that made me feel un uncomfortable and the scenes worked very well in conjunction with that there's also a use of animal sounds that draw characters which also worked for me as well now that said this is a movie that i really liked while having some slight flaws for me i really like that stanley taking on this lovecraft story and adapting it as he did it is quite creepy the route that he took. There are some slight issues I have with some of the acting and the pacing for a stretch of this. It does do some really good things with the concepts and the social commentary. I thought the effects are on point and it is beautiful at times as well. The soundtrack and sound design were also good. I've already heard some people stating that only the pretentious will like this, but that's fine. I liked it and my goal is to do a rewatch before the year end as I've said and to see if anything is cleared from this initial viewing. I'm coming in at the moment that this is a good movie and my rating here is going to be an 8.5 out of 10. Now, I don't really have any spoilers or anything like that as it does have that social commentary that I said with the contamination of water, but there's nothing really that I think needs to have a spoiler section that I need to kind of go deeper in. It's not to say I didn't like this, it's just I think I've kind of got everything out there in the open that I really wanted to go over. So what I'm going to do is kick you over to the trailer for my next featured review.
Over here. Climb up the trellis. Man, I don't understand why she went out with them in the first place. She made a mistake. Believe me, we all do. Tammy, you can't live the rest of your life being scared of somebody. I just want to be with you. I need you. I'm tired of being alone. I just want you here with me right now. I'm gonna kill you! You hear me? You're dead! Dead! You're dead! You're dead! What did he do to you? It's an unfathomable twist of faith when God takes someone so young and innocent. But we must remember that he is going to a far, far better place. I will give you everything. I will give you a brain. I will give you immortality. Sometimes I feel worked up. It was the dinosaur. What? Oh, Michael, what have they done to you? Dance to the music. Go there. Michael's brain is inside of the dinosaur. Oh, my God. I knew he recognized me. Dinosaur man. A prehistoric. We'll just give people robot bodies for their brains. We're going to find you another body. I promise, okay? I'm a dinosaur. Leave him alone, Dad. That's my friend's brain in that dinosaur. Oh, he's bleeding. He can't bleed, he's mechanical. Dance to the music of the dinosaur. Okay, and for my second featured review of this episode, I watched Tammy and the T-Rex. This came from 1994. It was directed as well as co-written by Stuart Raphael, and then co-written as well with Gary Brockett. It stars Denise Richards, Theo Forsett, and Paul Walker. This is a comedy sci-fi film from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 4.2 on IMDb and a 3.0 on Letterboxd. And the synopsis is, an evil scientist implants the brain of Michael who is Paul Walker, a murdered high school student into a Tyrannosaurus. He escapes, wreaks vengeance on his high school tormentors, and is reunited with his sweetheart Tammy, who is Denise Richards. Now, growing up, I never heard about this film, which is interesting as this was around the time that I would be hitting up the video store a lot to rent movies. I heard about it, of course, through podcasts when Vinegar Syndrome did an updated Blu-ray featuring the R-rated cut that had been missing for years. I decided to check it out for my podcast when I used a randomizer for my last show here in January, and this is the number that came up, which is kind of what I have did for all of the older movies that I've reviewed this month on, uh, you know, for the featured reviews. We start off in a gymnasium where a bunch of cheerleaders are practicing. The one that we focus on, though, is Tammy. As they're finishing up, Michael comes in from football practice. The two of them are dating, and there's an interesting situation where he gives her a bracelet and a flower, but she tells him that she can't take it, and they hint around about something that he shouldn't do. I don't think this is ever fully fleshed out, but I do know that they use part of this where he eats the flower, so that way they can reference something to that later on. As they're leaving, they end up meeting her best friend, who is Byron, who is the O4 set. And he ends up going into the school, leaving them two alone. But then things take a turn when Tammy's ex-boyfriend, Billy, who is George Pilgrim, shows up. Now, he's kind of a... I mean, he's supposed to be a bad boy and has this gang of people that follow him around. Now, the two of them, as in Billy and 
Michael get into a fight, which is really weird because they both grab each other's groin, and I'm not really sure why. I'm assuming this is supposed to be comedic, is the only really thing that I can come up with, but the fight gets broken up by two cops. One of them is Norville, who is the legendary George Buckflower, and Neville, who is Ken Carpenter. Then it introduces us to Dr. Walkenstein, who is played by Terry Kaiser. And then with him is his assistant, Helga, who is Ellen Dubin. As well, he has this henchman who is a tough guy, who is Carl, played by John Edmondson. And this is what I thought was interesting. They have this scientist type guy with them as well, who is named Bobby, and played by John Franklin, who is from the original Children of the Corn as Isaac. And it is just a interesting thing to see him here because I know he's much older than what he actually looks. So it was kind of fun to see, you know, that all played out here. And then the doctor... Wackenstein has created a mechanical T-Rex that Bobby is controlling with a computer. Now, the doctor wants to put a brain inside of it, though, thinking that it'll make it more autonomous. And that's what the crux of what they're trying to do at the moment. And then that night, Michael gets a call from Tammy to come over. As he's sneaking into her room, Wendy, who is somebody I've seen in quite a few 90s horror movies back when I was growing up in Siobhan Durkin as well as her friend Michelle, who is Michaela Micah. They see him climbing up the trellis. They go and tell Billy, who brings his gang, which includes Weasel, who another horror film veteran, Sean Whalen, and the rest of the crew over. They bust into Tammy's house, chasing Michael away. But this I kind of had a little bit of an issue with, as she lives with her parents, and I don't see that actually playing out like they do here. But it's one of those things... Being that, again, that it's a comedy, I guess we're supposed to just kind of overlook that. But they end up catching him and taking him to a wildlife safari that's in town and leaving him there. And then after he has some run-ins with some giant cats like a panther as well as a lion, he's taken to the hospital in a coma. Dr. Walkenstein and Helga show up and convince Tammy and Byron that Michael has passed away. They steal his body and take it to their warehouse. It is there that the brain is removed and put into this giant T-Rex. Michael wakes up finding out his new fate and then attacks the henchman of Dr. Walkenstein before escaping. Now he's out for revenge and to get back to his girlfriend. That's where I'm going to leave the recap just because there's not a whole lot to the story and I don't really want to go too much more into that because it would just get, I think, a little bit repetitive and a little bit boring if I'm going to be honest. So I'm going to kind of shift here. But if you couldn't tell, this is an odd movie for sure. As I'm watching this, I'm not really sure who the audience was for this movie. Because it looks like originally this was released as a sci-fi comedy, as IMDb has it placed, with a PG-13 rating. Now, the R-rated cut is what I saw, as it has a bunch of blood and gore that was removed. That's why I'm not sure who the audience was. Like, was this supposed to be a horror movie that was comedy sci-fi as well? I'm just a little bit confused... But I do think this is, I mean, of course, this is now getting embraced by the horror community now that Vinegar Syndrome has put out the movie with this cut. I do have to say, and this includes me, if this film was released without the cuts back in the day, I'm not sure this would have the buzz that it does now. I think because of this rare cut that is now being praised is why it is getting the treatment that it is. I'm not mad for having watched this and doing this review now. It is just odd that that's the best way that I can describe this. Now, the story behind the movie is more interesting than the movie itself. The reason that they made this, 
from the stories that I've heard, and many of you probably have as well, is that they had access to this giant mechanical T-Rex, and they took advantage of it writing a story around it. Now, the story is implausible with how it plays out, but again, being that it's a comedy, I'm willing to overlook some of the odd flaws. I do like that they're having this cyborg-like machine getting its revenge, as that is something that Michael was ready to do before he brain was put into there, and then it makes sense as well. It being what it is, I could do a lot of things that we see as well. I will have to admit though, I did find this to be a bit boring. I didn't really know what to expect early on, but as a progressive, it kind of lost its way for me. I noticed myself picking up my phone to look at other things instead of paying attention and needing to tell myself to focus. That usually isn't a good sign while I'm watching a movie if I didn't really care what was going on. I just think the movie wasn't all that well thought out. And being that it was a comedy that I didn't really find it funny, so the jokes really didn't land, I do think watching this by myself might have been a bad idea, as this seems more of like a group movie for people to, you know, laugh at. I will say that the ending was intriguing with what happens to the T-Rex and then the implications afterwards. Something that really shocked me though was the cast. We of course have a young Richards and Walker here. I'm assuming neither of them really had been in anything as of yet. We don't get a lot of Walker as himself, but you can see that from what he did on screen he had some talent. That would end up developing into, you know, what we all know him for. Richards was hit or miss for me. There were times where she overacted, and I think part of that could have been just the script, but I could see flashes of what she would become as well. Dubin was solid as a villainous scientist along with Kaiser. It was fun to see Flower, Carpenter, Waylon, JJ Saunders, Franklin, and Durkin, who all appear in other horror movies that I've seen over the years. The acting, though, in general, was just all right for a movie like this. And I kind of mean that because there are some talented actors here. None of them really just did anything that really impressed me overall. Now, I was presently surprised by the most of the effects. Not all of them look good or real, but they went practical for most of them, which I'm always down for. The blood and gore that they put in here was better than some legit horror movies that I've seen. The T-Rex was done with animatronics, so that helped and there was some really bad effects at times that just made me chuckle. I did think that the cinematography was well done in a way to hide things, so that was um, a plus. The last thing was the soundtrack, which definitely felt very much like the 90s. It isn't very good, but I do have to give it credit as it was fitting for what was needed. It just definitely isn't one that stuck out to me or I would ever listen to again. Now with that said, this isn't a good movie. I did find it fun and just an intriguing piece of cinema. We have a cast that was pretty solid, but the performances aren't great. The concept of the movie is wild and how the R-rated cut was filmed doesn't make a whole lot of sense as I'm not sure who the target audience was and it really wasn't that funny and it does have some sci-fi elements, but I don't necessarily classify it there either. I did find it to be a bit boring, but the blood and gore looked good for the most part. The soundtrack fit for what was needed, but not really one that I would write home about. I found this to be just slightly below average overall, and a good portion of that is just the craziness that this was made. I have to come in with my rating to be a 4.5 out of 10. And now with that said, I'm not going to do a spoiler section as I don't really feel like that's needed here. So I'm going to go ahead and kick us over to one last musical break before closing out the show.
Okay, I want to thank you for listening to episode 12 of Journey with a Cinephile. As always, if you want to get in touch with me, you can email me at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. If you want to read any of my written reviews for any of the things on this episode or any of my previous ones, it's at Reviews of the Dead, and that's horrorreview.webnode.com. Facebook, you can find me at David Mishkin Garrett Jr. On Twitter, it's Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, it's David OSU. Instagram, David OSU87. And on FlickChat, it's Journey with a Cinephile. Not a whole lot necessarily going on over there, but I'm still trying and keep posting. And I've had some people kind of, you know, interacting there. And what I'm going to do is, now that we're getting into February, is I'm going to have two episodes of female directed films as well as two by black directors and then for the next episode it's going to be in the theater for the 2020 watch is going to be the turning and then on top of that as well i'm going to do the voices starring ryan reynolds i want to thank you once again for listening and hope you have a great day this is david garrett jr signing off